0: Okay, today I want to welcome Dr. Erwin Leopando, Associate Professor of English at LaGuardia Community College, City University of New York. Uh, he is the author of A Pedagogy of Faith The Theological Vision of Paulo Freire, uh, published by Bloomsbury in 2017. So, welcome to Nothing Never Happens.
1: Uh, thank you for having me, Tina.
0: Well, I'm really excited to talk about this topic that has, as you point out in your in your book, um, been ignored or uh, at best downplayed by other critical pedagogy scholars. And so, um, the, you know, which is the uh, influence of religion and liberation theology in the, in the thought and, and pedagogical praxis of Paulo Freire. So I want to ask you first how you got interested uh, and first encountered Paulo Freire. I mean, you're an English professor and That's teaching right, in right. higher education. And there I don't know that many people in higher education, uh, especially, you know, in my field uh, who are actually um uh, critically engaged with this, with uh, in theory and praxis. So, if you well, could, actually, talk um, about when, when you first encountered him, and uh, how it, um, you know, proceeded from there.
1: Um, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, I first encountered pedagogy of the oppressed in graduate school. I think it was my second or third year, and I had originally come into graduate school uh, mm-hmm. to study post-colonialism ah. uh, because I'm from the Philippines. Yeah, and I came to the U.S., and, um, you know, it was a really interesting field. And I ended up actually, I'm not exactly sure how, but taking a class uh, taught by Irish Shore. Yes. Uh, who, as you know, was uh, either one of Barry's closest collaborators here in the U.S. and co-wrote very first talking book with him. Uh, mm-hmm. From 1987. And um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed was one of the books uh, that was assigned in class. And I, I just remember very clearly um, sitting, uh, I think it was at a coffee shop or something, you know, doing the reading for the seminar. And, uh, you know, I as I was kind of paging through the book, uh, you know, I, I just had this feeling of, of recognition. And. Mm-hmm. Growing excitement because there was so much of the book that sounded like nothing I had read uh, for graduate school up to that point. It just seemed so much more, um, it's it's hard to describe. You know, there's just a very passionate and a very human book. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And
1: it's very open and it's moral commitment. And, um, you know, I grew up Catholic. Uh, as Barry himself is a lifelong Catholic, uh, but I had stopped attending uh, church a few years before. Uh, but you know the old saying: once a Catholic, always a Catholic. And I I was just reading the book, and I was thinking, you know, this this is extraordinarily Catholic.
2: Um, <laughs>
1: all the discourse about you know faith and hope and love and communion and mm-hmm. you know death and it was it was all right there. Um, and so it really struck a chord with me. And I started uh, looking more into fairy and, you know, from there on to critical pedagogy. And I took a few more classes with, um, with Irish Shore and then he ended up becoming mm-hmm. my dissertation director. Um, and, you know, and then I started to really go uh, more deeply into fairy's own background um, because I actually saw a lot of biographical resonances um, between his experience and mine, obviously, I didn't go through
2: the mm-hmm. huge
1: personal historical trauma that he did. Yeah. Um, but just like he did, you know, I I, I come from like a, a middle class background in a heavily Catholic country in the Philippines, mm-hmm.
2: um,
1: and they kind of went through a period of questioning and uh, you know dismay really at some of the forms of Catholicism that. Uh, you know, I was growing up around and, you know, it was, it was extremely bourgeois and uh, really very apolitical, right. Focused on,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, personal piety and, and ritual. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but when it's combined to that, I just found it completely unsatisfying, um,
2: yeah. especially
1: yeah. in light of, you know, I mean, the Philippines is an extraordinarily poor country. It's like
2: mm-hmm.
1: Brazil was and is and, and mm-hmm. finding it very hard to square Right. What I was reading about in the Bible and, you know, in the practices of the people who go to church and,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: the, the, the lip service that was paid to the poor. But, you know, very often nothing more than that. Right.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: anyway, so I went into very more deeply and, um, you know, I read a lot and, and researched a lot. And, and out came the book. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, the really exciting things that happened when I was, about halfway of the book was um, Pope Francis came along
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it seemed like um, there's a very exciting resurgence of a side of Catholicism which has never really gone away uh, yeah. but you know, especially in the. US you know it's it, it's it's been kind of muted over the last I, I would say you know 30 40 years or so, right, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the side that's much more oriented towards social gospel and social justice and that kind of thing, so, yeah, you know, I I feel like a lot of things came together um, Mm -hmm. at the right time for me when uh, producing this book.
0: Yeah, well, uh, let me get you to kind of set up for the listeners uh, the context of northeastern Brazil, where uh, Paulo Freire grew up and, and did... Some of his first major work, um, and how his Roman Catholic faith influenced his it, his activism, but also his thinking about uh, teaching and literacy.
1: Um, yeah, Northeastern Brazil, um, you know, where he grew up, you know, it, around um, you know before the Second World War, and, and he really uh, came of age there. Uh, was an extremely poor region of the country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, it's it's a largely agricultural. I mean, Ferry himself grew up in and around the city of Recife, but yeah, it, you know, it was um, very much uh, one of the most uh, neglected and economically impoverished regions um, of the country, and the life expectancy. Uh, mm-hmm. for men and women was really in the 40s. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean, of course, that everybody, you know, lives only until the 40s, but that includes infant mortality, right? So yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's fairly low.
2: Um,
1: so Ferry uh, grew up, you know, in in a household uh, of uh, two very devout parents, but they were not both Catholic. Mm-hmm. His, his mother was you know, in a lot of ways, a very traditional, devout Catholic. Uh, but his father was a spiritist, which was, um, it, you know, it, it was, if not necessarily an outlawed religion, uh, mm-hmm. definitely a, a second-class one in, yeah. in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that Ferry often wrote about when he was growing up was the fact that uh, neither one of his parents actually forced him uh, to embrace either spiritual path, right? They actually gave mm-hmm. him a, a lot of room uh, to explore and think for himself.
2: Yeah. And,
1: you know, later in life, when he wrote a lot more about his childhood, right? Because it, the yeah. later in his life he he went, the more autobiographical or overtly autobiographical his writing became, he referred over and over again to the spirit of uh, tolerance and, um, open-mindedness uh, of his childhood and and how much that informed not just the way that he approached his faith for the rest of his life but it you know, as you know uh, at the very core of his pedagogy
2: yeah uh,
1: is is the drive to help the learner uh, grow into their own agency
2: mm-hmm. right
1: um, but yes yeah, so you know the, the region he grew up in was predominantly Catholic, as was Brazil. Um, but what happened uh, as he was growing up was uh, there came to be um, a small but intensely engaged group mm-hmm. of youth activists. The, they they mostly were middle class, like Barry was. Um, yep. Tended to be, you know, much more highly educated. Uh, but together and also with the influence of uh, a new wave where progressive clerical uh, you know, mm-hmm. clergy mentors uh, started developing uh, you know really a new interpretation of what it meant to be a Catholic
2: mm-hmm. yeah
1: and this and- was much more um, you know it's it's I think a lot about what Pope Francis talks about you know he 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 always, criticizes um, ways of looking at the church that are very inward-looking and very Mm -hmm. self-referential and that are about, you know, um, not necessarily keeping people out uh, that's too harsh, but kind of preserving and advancing the interests of the institution first and guarding its own uh, privilege Yeah. and And I think, um, what a lot of the young activists of various' generation started to question was, well, is this really um, the right way to be the church in in this time and place uh, and th- especially considering how extreme uh, the poverty was and and what the, what a huge gap there was between. The have and the have nots. Mm-hmm. one of the things that actually was kind of remarkable about them was they, most of them, did come from wealthy families.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But rather than just uh, talk, you know, or perform um, acts of charity, they slowly, at first, but then with greater intensity over the 1950s and then er- into the early 60s yeah really started to become much more overtly activists and so they started to do things you know like organizing educational circles and very and was at the forefront of this swing of the activist movement um they started quote-unquote going to the poor uh, and and you know actually sometimes even living with them right
0: yeah they had a, yeah that was when he was doing uh the liter and the literacy programs
1: Yes, right. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And areas. you know. Yeah.
1: And um and he started experimenting with um different forms of education that were outside the established school
2: systems because mm-hmm. you, know,
1: you know this is not just a Brazilian phenomenon um, but mainstream institutional schooling uh yeah. doesn't always uh have the interest of the dispossessed the heart, right? They're, they're in a lot of ways about reproducing the status quo, right? Um, so, you know, he, he thought that, well, it, it's not just that um, the poor can learn, right? Uh, and can become literate, but that they must be because legally speaking, one of the huge structural barriers to democracy and equality at the time was that constitutionally, you have to be literate to be able to vote. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, his his vision was, well, if we can actually just uh, help to educate and and broaden the literacy base in the country, we could, you know, bring in millions, if not tens of millions, of new voters into the system, and who knows what could happen then.
0: Yeah. Um, And, you know, I mean,
1: that's one of the reasons. Yeah.
0: Oh, the same thing was happening in the States uh, at the Highlander Center. With the formation of the citizenship schools, and that, of course, um, led to Freire's connection with Miles Horton at the Highlander Center. Uh, they were both working, yeah, and, you know, in poor communities in rural areas on on literacy.
1: Yes, and yeah, and, and one of the um, uh, one of the things I actually did really enjoy uh, when I was doing my research, uh, for the book was uh, reading about their relationship,
2: and, mm-hmm. you
1: know. Again, also the the, um, uh, the theological and religious dimensions of the work that
2: they have. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, and, and really, you know, I think I think one of the main goals that I had for this book was mm-hmm. um, to really kind of excavate who Freire was before he wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, it's it's an extraordinarily famous book, and uh-huh. it deserves to be. Uh, but I think one of the unintended consequences of, you know, the spotlight on that book is that it's almost like he emerged fully formed in 1968 when he published the book. Yeah. Um, you know, and and you know, but obviously nobody emerges from a vacuum. And I think especially for um, a person like Ferry, who, you know, I think as much as anyone else I've studied. His biography and his philosophy uh, really are of one piece. I mean, this is true of everyone, but uh, you know, he he was uh, somebody who balanced both
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: theory and practice uh, to you know a really intense degree, and each fed on each other. And one of the things that um, you can notice when you take a look at his early years as an educator, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just figuring things out as he went along. Yeah. You know, yeah. there weren't really any models for him uh, to follow. And uh-huh. so, you know, when, when he was um, first coming up with the idea of forming literacy circles, you know, with with quote unquote no teacher, right, but just in some of the facilitator, uh, you know, and then the idea of using generative words and images and, uh-huh. you know, linking them to everyday life and
2: you uh-huh. know, breaking
1: down words syllables and then reforming them into more complicated words. I mean, again, you know, it, it's, um, it was, it was really an act of, I think, great creativity and a willingness to just try whatever sticks. Yeah. Uh, That I really appreciated.
0: Well, he was also learning from the peasants in, in the literacy circles, uh, who were setting him straight all the time about what their needs were. Um, and yes. so that, he yeah. could get and that out of the way. <laughs> um. yeah,
1: I, I I um yeah, I think you know the the idea, um which I think you know we, you know, educators, teachers, professors, uh even even I think those of us who draw inspiration from Ferry uh and you know try to emulate a lot of what he does, you know, mm-hmm. it is it is not always easy. To hang on to that sense of humility and openness to being taught yeah. by your students, right? I mean, I mean, here in the U.S., you know, it's like the professor,
2: mm-hmm. especially
1: you know, if you're a full timer, and especially if you're a tenured professor. Yeah,
2: right?
1: I mean, you are the emperor and empress mm-hmm. of your classroom. Mm-hmm. And you know, and when you're in that position, uh, you know, it can it can be very very easy to. You know, despite your best intentions, I think,
2: um, yeah. Yeah. kind of
1: impose uh, everything upon your students. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the power imbalance is always there.
1: Yes, um, and and I think the power imbalance is, you know, I mean, I I think a lot of people who follow fairy um, in the U.S you know, have have tried heroically in a lot of ways to mm-hmm. work around the power imbalance.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't
1: think anyone has uh, made a bigger contribution to this um, effort, I think, than Ira Shore. I mean, he's written yeah. some yeah. wonderful books where he really tries different things to kind of surrender as mm-hmm. much of his authority. Oh, you're talking about
0: students. when when students have power?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, one of the... the probably the greatest one of the greatest books on uh, classroom theory and practice i've ever read yeah, uh,
2: yeah. i mean
1: it's it's a oh, truly a, a wondrous book
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and yet you know i at the end of the day i think you know no matter how much you try right mm-hmm. the structure of the classroom you know and especially of course you know embodied in in like the grade and the credits
2: yeah
1: right i mean it, it, you know There's there's just no getting around it. Right. You can try to negotiate with students and, you know, be democratic as much as possible and setting up, uh, you know, criteria for certain grades and rubrics and expectations. But, yeah, you're still the one who gives the grade at the um, end of the semester.
0: Yeah. And and there's a lot to be said of of what what you're talking about, which is making it transparent that making the power and balance transparent and then negotiating yeah. with, together in partnership with students uh, as much as possible mm-hmm. within those institutional boundaries.
1: Yeah. Um, and and the, you know, one of the great challenges with that, too, is number one, that's extremely difficult. Right. Like that takes mm-hmm. a ton of time, um, you know, yeah. and the other thing, too, is, you know, I think the vast majority of students, you know, who walk into your classroom, you know, when you try to do something like that, it's kind of baffling,
2: right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, you
1: know, they've gone through. You know, they've been conditioned <laughs>
2: the
1: the other way, right? For you know, yeah, uh, twelve, fifteen years of school.
2: <laughs>
1: yes, absolutely, right? And you are changing the rules of the game. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. Like so. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's it's difficult. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's a worthy effort. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I do, you know, I I do come down to um. You know, Ferry's belief uh, ultimately that, you know, maybe you need to go outside the institutional structures to really do um, what he was trying to do. Because, yeah, there's just too much weighing
2: against it in Mm -hmm. the Mm classroom. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I think you're right. Um, Well, can we go back to 1968 for a minute? Uh, yeah. And even before that, but uh, the I'm talking in particular about the Medellin conference in August of 1968 mm-hmm. that in some ways launched um, what was already happening, but in a more concrete way because of the gathering of the um, Latin American uh, Roman Catholic bishops. Uh, it was sort of a landmark mm-hmm. for liberation theology and the idea that. Um, god is a liberator and on the side of the oppressed uh and that there were um there were those who were oppressors and those who were oppressed and both needed liberating in some ways the the haves the have nots the have a little want mores you know all of that Mm -hmm. um and the discussion of well what does it mean to be a person of faith uh in the context of this extreme poverty and um in military dictatorships in a lot of these countries, and that also forced Freire to flee Brazil um, and go into exile at uh, an earlier point. In any event, um, I want to get around to the influences of liberation theology uh, on Freire's thought. Um, the Roman Catholic influences and uh, what was happening at Medellin and other places that wasn't necessarily uh, stamped with approval by the Vatican at the time, but the Christian Marxist dialogue um, and and the idea that the philosophy of Karl Marx was was similar to the message of Jesus in the Gospels um, in terms of calling for uh, social equality and social justice. So this sort of meeting of of Marx and Christ together um, in a in a dialogical way that that Freire got involved in um if you could talk about that because these um liberation theology became very very dangerous um for bishops archbishops priests nuns lay people you know um so what got him uh passionate about this form of the roman catholic faith that was emerging uh, not just not just in uh latin america but uh, in the States and in the Philippines and uh, in East and South Asia uh, in Africa, um, you know, what got him involved in this concept of God as liberator? And I guess also uh, this long question, uh, the connection mm-hmm. of the God as liberator with um, his uh, own uh, self-identity um, with democratic pedagogy and pedagogy for freedom and liberation?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's one of the things that uh, maybe it's kind of ironic, right? But, you know, especially mm-hmm. when he very became the international um, radical celebrity, it's kind of strange thinking of an educator celebrity, but um he was, you know, when, when people thought of him, uh, probably one of the first two or three things they would think of, right? Oh, he's a radical Marxist.
2: Yeah. Um, the the, the, you know,
1: the thing that um, is that before actually he uh, left Brazil, really forced out uh, in 1963 after the coup, uh, before then, he actually was very, very skeptical mm.
2: uh,
1: of of Brazilian uh, communist and Marxist groups.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: he, um, you know, he, he always uh, kind of tried to present himself as being apolitical, mm-hmm. um, you know, which certainly was not what, you know, his self-presentation later in his life, right? But
2: yeah. um,
1: I think the great dividing line uh, for him, you know, intellectually and politically for sure, but I also think psychologically, uh, was the coup. Uh, you know, because yeah. during the coup, you know, his, his, um, his work was literally crushed, as in, you know, like destroyed and burned. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was put in, in, in a jail cell, mm-hmm. uh, really more like a box,
2: uh, yeah. you know,
1: for I think about two three months on end. You mm-hmm. know, and then he was forced out of the country. Uh, and I think you don't go through that kind of trauma. Uh, without coming out uh, radicalized or broken on the yeah. other side. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he was certainly not broken. Uh, instead, he was radicalized, right? Yeah. So after yeah. the coup, um, you know, when he tried to kind of reflect back on what went wrong and, you know, how do things end up this way? How can we start to reverse things? I mm-hmm. think he began to open himself a lot more to uh, to Marxist discourse. And mm-hmm. I don't think he was alone in this way, right? Um, and, and yeah. Just like, you know, many other members of, again, his his generation of kind of activists, uh, Brazilian Catholics, a lot of them also uh, began to become much more interested in and receptive to Marxist thought. I mean, many of them even before mm-hmm. Ferry was. So,
2: yeah.
1: you know, in this regard, he was actually not, um, you know, on the leading edge of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: uh but you know but i think before the coup uh some of the brazilian catholic activist groups especially those which were based from the universities um, had already started to assimilate some elements of marxist thought uh, you know and i think that process uh happened in a kind of compressed and accelerated form in very um you know around the mid 1960s and straight into the late 1960s. So it's really not a coincidence that Pedagogy of the Oppressed uh, was finished in 1968. Yeah. Right. And, and this is around the time, you know, also of, of the um, Latin American Bishops Conference.
2: Yeah. Uh, and
1: what was remarkable about that conference too was that, you know, it took a lot of um, the kind of opening up and liberalizing currents from uh, the Second Vatican Council, right, which mm-hmm. had finished. Uh, a few years before, and then it took it about 10 steps further, (laughs) so while the Second Vatican Council, uh, you know, and this is a big deal, right, it actually said, Um, look, you know, the church has uh, a role to play in history, Uh, you know, we have to open ourselves to quote-unquote the modern world, uh, and we have to engage in dialogue, um, you know, with people of other faiths and people of no faith, uh, which was a huge innovation
2: at that Mm -hmm. point.
1: Uh, you know, the Latin American bishop said, that's great, that's wonderful, um, but there's so much more that we need to do. And it's not just enough uh, to acknowledge uh, that, you know, God loves the poor and wants the poor yeah. uh, to, to, you know, have their material needs met. It's that God actually favors the poor, uh, mm-hmm. that there is a exactly. preferential option for the poor. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, whenever we come into a situation of conflict, as we always will, uh, you know, in human history, because we have, um, you know, history as a conflictive uh, field, then if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you must always, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lean toward the direction of well, what does the poor need, right? That's right. Um, what do they? What must they have? in order to achieve their full potential, their full humanity. And, you know, I think um, if there's like a single linchpin, uh, I think, or an intersection point between various pedagogy and kind of the, uh, the Vatican II slash liberation theology um, Uh strand of Catholicism, I think it is this focus on uh, human personhood, right? The development Uh of the person. all dimensions so not just spiritual although of course that's always there um but psychological um economic material um you know and again that always involves um resources and the distribution of resources Mm -hmm.
2: yeah yeah
0: and so uh, I wonder what Ferreira would say about um, the current political situation in Brazil uh, given all he worked for and it, it's gone back in time in some ways.
1: Yeah, I think he would, I think he would be heartbroken in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I far be attributed to kind of quick words into his mouth, um, you mm-hmm. know, I. but, you know, it's, I mean, the current during uh, the incoming administration, um, you know, I mean, one, one of one of uh, the things that they promised they would do was to ban Ferry's books, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I mean, it's it's a very authoritarian and populist in the way that um, Ferry really despised. You know, he populist is not a simple term. Uh, I think. There, there are populists who are really demagogues. Yeah. Um, and there are what Ferry would call true populists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Bolsonaro is, is definitely a demagogue and really a kind of a frightening authoritarian one. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Ferry would have been, um, you know, very dismayed at, at what's happening. Um, at the same time, you know, and, and this is something that, uh, really struck me and and impressed me, you know, because um, you know if you take a look at the whole range of his work that he wrote, work spanning you know 30, 30 mm-hmm. years or so, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and those were not all good years. There were a lot of reversals, a lot of setbacks, a lot of yeah. Um, one of the enduring messages uh, that he really tried to communicate over and over again um, was that we have to hope uh, Mm -hmm. that hope is both uh, a requirement of being fully human. That's a phrase he loved to use you know, what it means to be fully human. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hope is a requirement of being fully human. Uh, I would even, you know, and this is my understanding of it, my twist on it, but um, I suspect that, you know, one of the theological, uh, underpinnings, and that also is that hope is, it's almost like a commandment, right? Yeah. That to, yeah. you know, to try to follow um, Jesus Christ means you you never surrender hope.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: because it's really, you know, so much of um, the story of, of Christianity is about reversal uh, and, Unexpected, um, upside down, out of nowhere twists—you um, mm-hmm. know—that happen in history. Right? Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's it's a difficult time. Um, you know, I, you know, it's a difficult time in a lot of places. Uh, but I don't think um, that he would ever say, "Oh, this is it. It's all over." Um, yeah. You know, yeah. his understanding of history was that you know it was always unfinished. Mm -hmm. It's always open to further development, which means it could go horribly wrong, but it also could go in the right way. And so we always just have to keep in the game because, you know, if you don't, well, that's when things really slide backwards.